Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME Clinical Chart Review. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. Indiana University School of Medicine and CME Outfitters, LLC, gratefully acknowledge educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company and Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated and from Pfizer Incorporated in support of the CE activity. This activity is titled Assessing and Managing the Patient with Bipolar Mania, Part 1. Our moderator for this activity is Dr. Roger S. McIntyre. Our distinguished guest faculty for this activity is Dr. Terrence A. Ketter. Dr. McIntyre is the head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at University Health Network and Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. McIntyre has disclosed that he receives grant research support from Eli Lilly and Company, Jameson Ortho Incorporated, and Shire Pharmaceuticals, as well as private industries or nonprofit funds, Stanley Medical Research Institute, National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression. He serves on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, France Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Organon, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Solvay Wyatt. He serves on the speakers bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Wyatt Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Ketter is Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Chief of the Bipolar Disorders Clinic at Stanford University School of Medicine in Stanford, California. Dr. Ketter has disclosed that he receives grant support from Abbott Laboratories Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Cephalon Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Pfizer Incorporated, Replogen Corporation, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. He serves as a consultant to Abbott Laboratories Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Astellas Pharmaceuticals, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Cephalon Incorporated, Dynapone Sumitomo Pharmaceuticals, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Pharmaceuticals Products LP, Jazz Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation, Organon International Incorporated, a part of Shearing Plow Corp., Sepracor Incorporated, Solvay Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Valiant Pharmaceuticals, Vanda Pharmaceuticals, Wyeth Pharmaceuticals, and Xenoport Incorporated. He has received lecture honoraria from Abbott Laboratories Incorporated, AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Novin Pharmaceuticals, Atsuka Pharmaceuticals, and Pfizer Incorporated. Disclosures of faculty financial relationships and full biographical profile can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 445. Over the next half hour, Dr. McIntyre and Dr. Ketter will review a patient case study and take questions from the audience. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. At the end of this CE activity, Participants should be able to utilize validated tools to assess for mania symptoms in patients diagnosed with depression. 
Those applying for nursing credit should be able to describe validated tools used to assess the symptoms of mania and hypomania. Presentation slides along with a patient chart discussed during today's activity can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 445 or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neurosciencecme.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Hello, it's my pleasure to welcome you to today's Neuroscience CME Chart Review. I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto. I'm also head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network. I am very pleased to uh, be moderating today's Neuroscience CME Chart Review Series entitled Assessing and Managing the Patient with Bipolar Mania. I'm joined by a friend and colleague, Dr. Terry Ketter. Uh, Dr. Ketter is the uh, professor of psychiatry at Stanford University, and Dr. Ketter has been gracious uh, to join us for today's session and has uh, prepared a case for us, uh, an interesting case that's aligned with the objective of today's program. Uh, Welcome, Terry, to today's program. Pleasure to be here, Roger. I'm looking forward to hearing about the case that you have uh, for us today that is a case that really brings out some of the key teaching uh, pearls uh, in line with our objectives of assessing the managing the patient with bipolar mania. Thanks, Roger. So uh, this case involves a person who we'll call Allison, and she's a uh, 23-year-old Caucasian female college junior, and she was referred from her student counselor for having both academic and social problems. And the uh, counselor thought that this was possibly related to treatment-resistant depression and possibly even uh, abusive diet pills. From Allison's point of view, her main concerns were that she was getting failing grades at uh, college and she was getting increasing problems with her boyfriend and her dormitory mates. And if we kind of go a little deeper into this and look at her history, uh, basing this on the concern of the counselor that she had treatment-resistant depression, she provides a history of a first depressive episode occurring in high school during the ninth grade, actually late in the fall after having her first set of tests. And at that time, she became depressed and was treated with paroxetine, 20 milligrams each day, and had a somewhat unusual reaction to the paroxetine in that she experienced insomnia and agitation rather than the more expected response of improved sleep and uh, calming effect. At that point, the paroxetine was stopped, and she began working in cognitive behavioral therapy, which yielded some benefit, but uh, she continued to have uh, problems with her grades and actually ended up repeating the ninth grade. After that, she did reasonably well, but as a college student in her sophomore year, she had a second depressive episode, and this occurred with a clear stressor. It occurred after the termination of a year-long romantic relationship, And at that stage, she was unenthusiastic about receiving treatment and uh, basically declined treatment and went on medical lead and improved gradually uh, by the following spring. That moves us forward to uh, her third and current depressive episode. So this began when she came back to school and resumed her sophomore year. 
and was associated with markedly strained uh, romantic and peer relationships, so with, with her boyfriend and her dormitory mates. And her academic performance, which had improved the, the prior year, markedly deteriorated, and she was considering dropping out. At that stage, she was treated with citalopram, and it was titrated up to 40 milligrams, and interpersonal therapy. And this, unfortunately, only yielded minimal improvement, leading to her referral to our clinic. Other history includes a medical history that's remarkable for childhood obesity and teenage bulimia. Her weight is in the high normal range, and she's been controlling her weight with diet, exercise, and episodically taking fentramine, 15 milligrams per day. With respect to her social history, her parents are divorced. She's had a highly variable academic achievement over the years, ranging from A's to F's, and currently has had strained romantic and peer relationships due to primarily episodic irritability. Her family history is remarkable for a mother who had a history of bulimia as well as a single postpartum depression and a maternal grandmother who had severe recurrent depressive episodes that required hospitalization and electroconvulsive therapy. And she died under somewhat suspicious circumstances at age 48 in a single vehicle uh, car crash. Looking at Allison's uh, current situation during the psychiatric interview, she presented with a depressed mood and also endorsed uh, anhedonia or a lack of positive emotion. She expressed guilt regarding relationships with her boyfriend and her dorm mates. She expressed passive thoughts of death, thinking that it would be okay if she just fell asleep and didn't wake up, but denied any act of suicidal ideation. She described pretty substantive concentration problems that were interfering with her schoolwork. She also noted some psychomotor agitation and said it was hard to stay still in class, and if she'd sit down and try to do some homework, she'd find herself getting up and pacing around. Even at meals in her dorm, uh, she'd have problems just sitting there for the whole time. It would be up and down, and some of her dorm mates would complain, actually, about her kind of restless behavior. She described initial insomnia, taking routinely more than 30 minutes to fall asleep each night, and went into a little bit more detail with respect to some of the irritability that she'd had with her boyfriend and doormates, and noted that this occurred most days, uh, which were in fact the days that she was taking fentramine to suppress her appetite. On days when she wouldn't take the fentramine, uh, she would have a tendency towards binge eating but no purging. And she was trying to do this uh, several days a week to uh, avoid the fentramine. The, the outcome of this with respect to her weight was her weight was fairly stable but in the high normal range. In looking at her situation, uh, an early onset depression with agitation, uh, family history of mood disorders, uh, recurrent depressions, the lack of a beneficial effect with antidepressants. In fact, in some instances, having, uh, having mood symptoms get worse with antidepressants. It certainly raises the issue of the possibility of a bipolar condition. And therefore, uh, we had Allison uh, fill out the mood disorder questionnaire, which is a screening instrument for a lifetime history of symptoms mood elevation. And 
something that we found very useful, we also had her boyfriend, who was interested enough to accompany her to the appointment, rate the patient herself on the mood disorder questionnaire. The reason for this is that individuals who have mood elevation seem to be less sensitive to those symptoms than significant others. So Allison attested a lifetime history of irritability, decreased need for sleep, increased energy, racing thoughts, and distractibility. So five of the symptoms. And uh, her boyfriend additionally stated that uh, at times he had experienced her as having over-talkativeness and excessive libido, which needs to be taken as particularly impressive co coming from a college-age male. And as such, uh, we've got a little bit of a discordance. The symptoms that Allison uh, attested to on the mood disorder questionnaire, she not only mentioned that this occurred during her lifetime, but that these at least five symptoms that she identified were going on right now. So we have some additional information that has been detected with the mood disorder questionnaire that's fairly consistent between Alice and her boyfriend, with her boyfriend reading some items a little higher than Allison. That's very helpful, Terry. I think there's many, many different uh, parts of that history that are instructive. What really, I think, emanates from the case, uh, as, I, as I react to it, as you present it, is the importance of a longitudinal history. Uh, as you had mentioned, some of the so-called Robinson Guse validators of mental disorder, the age at onset, the course, the phenomenology, come forward. And I think that in busy practice, we often are uh, left with a, a situation where we perhaps underemphasize, uh, unfortunately underemphasize, uh, the course of illness. Given what you've you've been able to extract so far and this information provided, particularly the augmentation with the use of a screening instrument, what at this point would be your working diagnosis? Well, certainly the, the patient meets criteria for a major depressive episode, and uh, the folks at Student Health Services were well aware of that, and the patient was well aware of that. What is new is that the patient at the same time has symptoms of mood elevation. And if we look at the symptoms that define uh, a DSM-4 manic episode, they include inflated self-esteem or grandiosity, which is not present at this time, uh, decreased need for sleep, which is, uh, over-talkative, which at least by the boyfriend's rating is, uh, racing thoughts, which they both agree are present, distractibility, which they both agree are pre is present, psychomotor agitation, which um, the dorm mates uh, have complained of, and impulsivity with potentially painful consequences, which uh, was a negative on the screen. So there are uh, more than enough symptoms to suggest an episode of mood elevation. If we look at a manic episode, these symptoms have to be present for at least one week, and there need to be a core mood symptom such as euphoric, expansive, or irritable mood. In this patient's uh, instance, it's primarily irritable. And because the mood is merely irritable, there have to be uh, four rather than three of the associated symptoms I just mentioned. And outside of the duration, uh, the other thing that differentiates a manic episode from a hypomanic episode is that it has to be severe. And so that it has to entail psychosis, hospitalization, or marked social and occupational impairment. 
And so in this instance, uh, with her deteriorating relationships, and uh, she actually mentions contemplating taking some more time off school and uh, even moving out of the dorm because some of the problems are getting uh, so severe and that uh, she may end up terminating this relationship with this boyfriend, you could certainly could make a case for this to be considered severe. Uh, making uh, her meet criteria for mania as well as depression at the same time or DSM mixed episode. Gary, earlier you referred to the MDQ, the Mood Disorder Questionnaire, a screening tool for bipolar disorder. When we think about uh, these types of metrics, we divide them into three different categories, screening tools, diagnostic tools, and so-called symptom measurement tools. Moving beyond the MDQ as a screening tool, what do we have available to us as clinicians to complement our day-to-day practice to diagnose bipolar disorder and to rate the severity of so-called manic symptoms? Okay, so if we look at diagnostic assessments, we we have the screening tool I just mentioned, which is uh, the mood disorder questionnaire, and that is a validated tool. So that is something that we've got that a busy clinician uh, can uh, make use of without use, utilizing an inordinate amount of time. Now, the validation studies of the MDQ involved looking at structured interviews, and so the kind of research tools that are used include the structured clinical interview uh, for DSM-4 disorders of the SCID, and indeed uh, the MDQ was validated with that. And then one that is a little bit uh, easier to use in terms of uh, the amount of time it takes than the mini international neuropsychiatric interview. These are both pretty long research tools. If uh, one was interested in becoming more systematic about diagnosis, you could just pull out the mood module of those, and even more specifically, the mood elevation module. So in the Systematic Treatment Enhancement Program for Bipolar Disorders, we had an affective disorders evaluation, which basically had the mood elevation module lifted from the structured clinical interview for DSM-IV. A lot of clinicians will rely upon just going through the DSM criteria uh, in a systematic fashion without a structured interview, and that, in many instances, can get the job done, too. If we look at the mood elevation severity assessments that are available to us, and I'm focusing uh, for this discussion pretty well exclusively on the mood elevation side of things. There are other instruments uh, of each of the types you've described for depression, which uh, are commonly available, but I don't think that's the fulcrum on this diagnostic issue. I, I think it really hangs on the mood elevation. There is a small instrument called the Altman Self-Rating Mania Scale, and this is a self-report measure. It's a severity of mood elevation uh, instrument that is by self-report, and as such has come under some criticism because there is a notion, and I, I think this is a correct notion, that patients who have severe mood elevation lose insight and uh, really can't report this very well. So this kind of an instrument is is most useful for milder mood elevations um, where you have a degree of insight, and it's also quite useful if you have a significant other uh, rate the patient as well. 
The research analog of this are, uh, involves more complicated measures. Uh, this Altman self-rating mania scale has uh, been validated against a more comprehensive clinician-administered rating scale for mania. It's called the CARS-M. And another research tool is the Young Mania Rating Scale. Now, each of these are structured instruments that are used in research, and for everyday use in busy, busy clinicians, they may find uh, that this, is, uh, this takes a little bit too much uh, time. Thanks, Harriet. I want to I want to take this opportunity to press the point strongly. Uh, the use of measurement-based care, the use of some of the tools that you've highlighted, some of the symptom measurement tools. As a clinician, I use these on a routine basis to sharpen the focus, to quantify severity, and also to really evaluate and compare my treatment intervention effectiveness. I want to remind our audience that you can type your question in the box at the bottom of this window and click and submit uh, the button uh, to send the question to uh, Dr. Ketter here today. We'd be more than happy to address your question. I see a question here about commenting on the usefulness of the MDQ and that busy healthcare professionals are concerned that uh, they're increasingly asked to do more and more sort of assessments and they have less and less time to do these things. And uh, how how can uh, they strike that balance between the need between for measurement-based care and the real-life demands of clinical treatment? One, uh, one potential way of doing this is to use um, self-rated instruments and have the patients uh, fill the, complete these instruments uh, before uh, the visit. And that's one of the strengths of the MDQ, and for that matter, uh, the Altman self-rating uh, mania scale. So self-ratings have some limitations, but one thing they do get around is this issue raised raised by this clinician who's concerned about the amount of time that's necessary to do it. Now, you've got to motivate the patients to do these things before the visit and uh, hopefully not take up a lot of visit time uh, completing these measures. Yeah, that's a, an important point here. I want to come back to that in a moment. Before I do so, I just want to just mention to our audience that we have many, many questions that have come in. You can certainly feel free to submit your, uh, submit your question. We have online resources at Neuroscience. CME.com. At the conclusion of this Q&A session, we'll, we will automatically redirect you to that site uh, to take advantage of some of the evidence-based resources we have there. We have many questions that relate to this issue of using measurement, uh, using diagnostic or screening tools, uh, theory, and clinical practice. I want to follow up with one of our questions from a colleague who mentions that he does not find the MDQ particularly useful in his clinical practice and has raised this important issue. He says that uh, he's often being asked whether or not reimbursement uh, is, uh, uh, re you know, practices reflect uh, using these scales. In other words, uh, is using this scale going to be reimbursed, and how would it affect possible reimbursement when seeing a patient? Well, you know, the the direction things are going, and I don't think it's there yet, but. Um a lot of uh, healthcare utilization review techniques have increasingly been suggesting that they're going to look at uh, measuring outcomes and sort of at a mi minimum doing something like a clinical global impression so you can measure whether patients are getting better or not. And this is really a, a movement that is gaining momentum towards measurement-based care 
and it's going it's going to be an increasingly uh challenging to um to meet standards that are set by third party uh payors and hopefully uh the clinicians and the profession itself uh can take the initiative to establish such standards rather than having them imposed uh, from the outside by third-party payers. The question comes up regarding the use of MDQ um, by whom and when, and more specifically, family members. Can a family member complete the MDQ? I think that this is an excellent idea, and uh, uh, patients themselves are more sensitive raters of depressive symptoms, and significant others are more sensitive raters of mood elevation symptoms. And some of some of the data, not not necessarily with the MDQ, but other um, structured instruments like the SCID and genetic studies, uh, the DIGS interview and genetic studies, have suggested that the number of informants you have uh, increases the uh, the sensitivity of the ratings. Patients who have mild mood elevation are commonly uh, not thinking of that when they're coming in for care if they're if they have a current depressive episode and they may not even remember that they've had such problems in the past. One of the often encountered um, uh, challenges we have as clinicians, Terry, is we often see patients who have bipolar disorder who come from different cultures, different ethnic and racial backgrounds, often affect the way bipolar disorder presents. The MDQ, has it been validated, and do you think it has an application in uh, populations outside of a Caucasian bipolar population? This is an excellent question, and these data are just beginning to uh, filter through. Uh, I, I'm not aware of sort of top-tier publications like in the American Journal and such that have... Uh, published validations of the MDQ. That's not to say there there may be other um, publications like Asian Pacific Rim Psychiatry or something like this that have done so. Journal of Affective Disorders has a lot of international um, replications of uh, instruments. Um, it's, it's a good question. I, um, I would... Uh, I would say that these things are necessary, but they, they haven't been high, the highlight in top-tier journals. Terry, our audience has come in with many, many fabulous questions, and I, I want to push us along here if we could. What was your formal diagnosis in the case that you presented? How did you treat her? Okay, so in this particular pa patient, we are looking at some prominent depressive symptoms as well as mood elevation symptoms. And she does meet criteria for major depressive episode, but she also meets criteria for at least hypomania and most likely mania. So this would be a DSM mixed uh, episode. Uh, you need to keep in mind that you don't need to have psychosis or hospitalization for DSM uh, mixed episodes. You can have severe dysfunction. And um, unfortunately, the DSM is not uh, operationalized what severe dysfunction is, but um, here is an individual who is looking at her academic and her social and uh, her romantic interests um, being seriously threatened by the current episode. So I, I believe you, you could call this a mixed episode. Terry, often we see individuals in our clinical practice who have a comorbid diagnosis or, frankly, an alternative diagnosis of personality disorder 
there are many borderline personality disorder often being mentioned, but not certainly the only one that we mentioned in, in bipolar discussions. How would you, as a clinician, how would you differentiate bipolar disorder from personality disorder, more specifically borderline personality disorder? Okay, so one of the things with uh, people with borderline personality disorder, they they seem to have uh, a chronic instability of identity, relationships, and behaviors, whereas in patients with bipolar, they have a more episodic course of problems in these realms. Uh, the you know the borderline overlap with bipolar it, it is possible to have both and it is possible in fact for the borderline to be the primary diagnosis and say perhaps a bipolar two or not otherwise specified be a secondary diagnosis so they can occur uh, just to put the borderline comorbidity in context we're talking maybe fifteen twenty percent for borderline in patients with bipolar disorder, and that, that's kind of pushing it, whereas you're looking at at least 40%, 50% for anxiety disorder or substance use disorder. So the, the borderline comorbidity uh, gets attention, probably rightly so, because it's uh, pretty dramatic, but uh, much more commonly we're going to see substance use comorbidity and anxiety disorder comorbidity, and sometimes people have the borderline as well. So it's it's um, some of the some of the complexity of these comorbidities is illustrated in this case. It's an excellent point regarding the prevalence of borderline personality disorder, and when one juxtaposes that to anxiety disorders. Uh, I think about the literature that has reported on personality disorder, whether we use the DSM categorization uh, system. Uh, often avoidant personality disorder is uh, a comorbidity in bipolar disorder. And using a different language, but when we use these measures of personality, these dimensional measures, the measures of, for example, of neuroticism, openness, uh, agreeableness, and so on, what we learn is that people with bipolar disorder score very high on levels of neuroticism, which may in part... Uh, be at least obliquely related to what you mentioned about anxiety. One of the other questions that comes up uh, from uh, the audience here today is using atypical antipsychotics. And, 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 and I don't want to get too much into this right now. We had a few other questions on diagnosis. But do you have a concern about using, uh, using atypicals versus conventionals and a risk for tardive dyskinesia? Well, certainly, you know, the prescribing information for the second generation or atypical antipsychotics indicates that th this is a possibility, and it's worth uh, monitoring patients, particularly if you see any any kind of subtle oral buckle changes, like chewing the inside of your cheek or something like that. But this is this is really really dwarfed by problems with either sedation or weight gain with some of the older atypicals or akathisia with some of the newer atypicals. So as as a practical limitation of these drugs, I, I don't see these neurological side effects we were so concerned of uh, with the older agents as being our, our biggest challenge. I'm going to uh, ask our operator if there's any questions on the phone line. We have many, many, many uh, emails coming in with uh, questions for Dr. Ketter. Please have them. Please send them along. Uh, our operator, any questions on phone? I'm showing no questions at this time, but just a reminder to our audio audience, if you wish to ask a question via the phone, simply press star 1. Sure. 
We have a comment and a question, uh, Terry, coming in from one of our colleagues who says they've had very good experience using the mania, hypomania section of the mini uh, in individuals who screen positive for the MDQ, highlighting that it's uh, efficient in time and often helps differentiate. What's been your experience using the, mini, uh, the, the, the mania module of the mini? I think if, uh, if you're looking at something that's um, going to give you a time-efficient yet high-quality diagnosis for patients with bipolar, screening with the MDQ, and if you get a positive screen, then using a more structured instrument like the MINI, and only going to the module that you're of interest, okay, so the mood module of the MINI. And I, I think even you know, if you look at the mood module of the MINI, uh, our biggest challenge is not meeting uh, figuring out if somebody meets criteria for major depressive episode. That's that's pretty straightforward. So the mood elevation module in particular of the MINI is useful, and you can you can pull the one out of the skid as well. Either one. Uh, the wording in the MINI is uh, is user friendly. Um, Another thing that we do in screening for anxiety is we, we use the uh, the branch questions at the top of each of the anxiety disorders for the mini. So you can you can use portions of these uh, structured instruments, either looking at the very first branch question, which is a little bit like a screen for different anxiety disorders, or to nail it down, particularly for mood elevation, just taking the mood elevation module of the mini would be something that would be very useful. And if you only take that part of the mini, it's not that long. We have many more questions coming in. We're going to stay on this for another 10 to 15 minutes or so if we can. Um, Terry, one of the questions that comes up, which I think is an excellent one, is the overdiagnosis of bipolar disorder. One of our colleagues has seen this and that has encountered many patients who have received this diagnosis who, in fact, don't have bipolar disorder. And one of the examples is someone who presents with a major depressive episode in prominent anxiety. How would you sort out whether this is part of a mixed bipolar presentation or is this part of a unipolar condition with prominent anxiety? Yeah, this is this is really problematic. And uh, a related issue is in children and adolescents, there's been a 40-fold increase in uh, diagnosis of bipolar disorder in the last few years. Uh, traditionally, the thinking about depressions that were suggestive of bipolarity were these kind of hibernating depressions, so sleeping too much, eating too much, low energy, and sort of anhedonic shutdown depressions. And then over the last few years, there has been um, a, a movement towards trying to grab agitated depressions or anxious depressions, depressions with insomnia, irritability, weight loss, and say, well, those are more like mixed. If you take that tack, that doesn't leave too much for unipolar. Mm -hmm. And so the International Society for Bipolar Disorders has looked at um, a sort of dimensional model or a probabilistic model for um, for a depression perhaps representing a risk of bipolarity. And they've gone with the more conventional sort of shutdown depression being uh, the, the biggest indicator. That being said, if somebody meets criteria for major depressive episode and they meet criteria for a manic episode, they've got a mixed episode. If they meet criteria for a hypomanic episode 
and a major depressive episode, they have something that is not even in the DSM. And we call it dysphoric <clears throat> hypomania. Right. And so you can see that a, a patient uh, with anxiety and uh, depression and insomnia and agitation will chalk up a few mixed points. Uh, one key issue is decreased need for sleep. Okay, so you, uh, if that is present, there are a few things in all of psychiatry that cause that, so that can help you. And if the patient's mood is merely anxious and not irritable, that's not enough to nail nail down a mood elevation episode. There are several questions related to the possibility that citalopram or, for that matter, uh, phantermine may have contributed in some way to the presentation that Allison, in fact, did present with, and that is manic symptoms. What are your thoughts? Several questions have come in. Has citalopram in some way exacerbated or has phentermine in some way contributed to her clinical presentation? Yeah, these are important. And if you um, say citalopram was uh, started within the last three months or had the dose substantially increased within the last three months, or say phentermine for that matter, um, in the systematic treatment enhancement program for bipolar disorder, we, we implicated treatments that have been started or increased within the last three months. And if that is the case, then there certainly is a possibility that these treatments uh, are contributing, if not causing, uh, the problem. And if, if you really believe in your heart of hearts that it is the case and it's secondary to a substance, then, uh, then this so-called mixed episode would be a secondary mixed episode and would not contribute to a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder, but uh, due to, uh, but to a diagnosis of uh, mood disorder due to uh, treatment. Um, we're commonly in this uh, situation in the real world where there's a degree of uncertainty about this. Um, when you get right down to the bottom of it though, if the patient does have these mood symptoms, and uh, they, it, it is secondary, they still have to be addressed. And mm -hmm. you certainly want to remove the things that you think to be the offending substances and then go ahead and treat. All of the FDA-approved treatments for manic and mixed episodes are, manic and mixed ep are for manic and mixed episodes due to bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we, uh, we are commonly, it doesn't take long at all for us to get beyond the evidence base right. and that we're tra treating these possibly secondary manic and mixed episodes. Um, and I, I, I can't see us uh, finding a way out of this problem. I, I think we're, we're forced with inferring from, from the, the data that we have on the bipolar manic and mixed episodes. And clinically, I, I think these episodes respond similarly certainly with the caveat that if you if you really have an antidepressant or a stimulant that are, is making things worse, as long as that's still around, it's harder to make good things happen. Mm -hmm. And so patients who meet criteria for a mixed episode, you really want to try to simplify things and, and try to get the provoking agents out of there. Or, and this, this gets controversial, um, 
say the patient was taking fluoxetine and you added olanzapine, well, then they are on an approved treatment for bipolar depression that hasn't particularly been implicated in causing more switches into mixed. And we just don't know whether that would be a good idea or not. Getting rid of antidepressants is problematic. As long as you have depressive symptoms, the patients are kind of loath to give them up. Certainly one of the few indicators that you ought to be looking seriously at getting rid of antidepressants is uh, the presence of syndromal mania or hypomania, even in the presence of a depression. So in this particular patient, um, the citalopram at, at, at best was still letting her be this way and at worst was making her mood worse. So uh, it, should be, uh, it should be considered for discontinuation. Yeah, I would agree with that. And my experience has been in the case of Allison that uh, the discontinuation of these types of treatments often, uh, well, rarely on its own is sufficient, but often uh, adds credence to this notion that these treatments may in fact be exacerbating the condition. Here's a question, uh, Terry, that has, I think, both theoretical and clinical implications, and that is, what is the expected duration of an untreated manic episode? Well, this varies from one patient to the next, and when you're taking your history, it is very useful to, um, to obtain this information. If you take the classic form of bipolar disorder, uh, you would say perhaps three months of pure mania followed by six months of uh, pure depression. The depressive episodes tend to be about twice as long as the manic episodes commonly occur just before and or just after them. Um, individual patients have different characteristics, though. People who have seasonal depressions, okay, they, they tend not to go all the six months of winter. Uh, and they may not be adjacent with the mood elevation episodes. So you may get hypomania in the summer and then uh, a depression in the winter that is worse around the holidays, perhaps maybe for psychological reasons, and then starts to get better um, before the, the six months is up. So studying your individual patient to uh, see the illness characteristics is very important, particularly if you come in with uh, some intervention Right before the expected end of the episode by the calendar, it's a little bit hard to infer that you've actually done something because the episode might have ended on its own. We have many, many questions coming in, and I would encourage our audience to keep doing so, keep sending your questions to us. I want to ask our operator if we have any live callers that are waiting to place a question to Dr. Terry Ketter. Uh, yes, doctor. We actually have a few uh, questions up here. Our first one comes to us from Sheila Barr. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Yes, a uh, very interesting discussion. Uh, I have a gentleman that, uh, you know, it gives a history of uh, a lot of irritability, have used the in depressive episodes, a lot of anxiety that's been really unresponsive to things. He's about 33 years old. Um, he came to me from another psychiatrist uh, who had, you know, used the mood disorder questionnaire, and he was, you know, checking off things all reflective of possible mania. But I wasn't convinced. And when I sent him to um, the uh, for neuropsychological testing, one of the things that came out and was a question to me was what component of ADHD was in here. Mm -hmm. And what the neuropsych testing showed was uh, he had a lot of impulsivity that would make him choose wrong answers because he just got frustrated. 
He just wanted to do things very quickly when he was taking tests. Um, and so he had, he had failed out of, uh, of his college program and was looking to try and go back. Uh, so my, my question all comes down to is when you use these, the mood disorder questionnaire, if you have patients who have accompanying ADHD-type symptoms or impulsivity for other reasons just as part of their personality, you can get all sorts of answers on the mood disc, disc, uh, questionnaire that just really throw you in the wrong direction. So I'm wondering if you can speak to the comorbidity there of ADD and uh, trying to separate that out from uh, bipolar episodes. Right. Okay. So this is a very good question. Um, you know, the the M, the mood disorder questionnaire was kind of calibrated to strike a balance between having enough specificity so that if it was positive, uh, they actually had bipolar disorder, but enough sensitivity so that it wouldn't be missing a whole bunch of bipolar. And if you if you increase the number of positive items that are required above seven out of thirteen and make it higher you're going to lose some sensitivity, but you might get more specificity. So if somebody is just squeaking through and just makes it, uh, say, 7 to 13 items on the on the MDQ, uh, it would be important to look at uh, potential comorbidities. And attention deficit hyperactivity is highly comorbid with bipolar disorder, particularly in uh, children and adolescents. And uh, a history of stimulants either uh, making things better, which may occur in prepubertal bipolar kids, but may not occur so much in adolescents with bipolar, is also helpful. In some instances, uh, patients require both a stimulant and a mood stabilizer or, or an atypical antipsychotic along with the stimulant. Those patients tend uh tend to be uh, people who have uh, really have the comorbidity and have both of them, uh, both the ADHD and the bipolar. Um, you can look in patients with ADHD, there are, there are items that overlap, so there's impulsivity, hyperactivity, and inattention, and uh, those could be explained by mania, and in the hierarchy of diagnoses, um, mood disorders trump ADHD. They're thought to be more specific. So if you're uncertain, uh, the, the DSM suggests that you ought to give priority at least first to the mood disorder over the ADHD if you're thinking of choosing one versus the other. Yet you still have the option of uh, considering both occurring at the same time. Yeah, and, and he would... His history would agree with that because I had, uh, uh, he really didn't, he would only respond like for a day for a treatment with, um, I think it was either Ritalin or Concerta and uh, from a prior treating psychiatrist. And uh, where he seemed to say that he really started to feel an improvement was when I put him on Stratera. And um, right now I have him on Lamictal, Stratera, and Lexapro. Um, and, um, but we're still, you know, having problems uh, with a lot, a lot of irritability. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of psychosocial things that enter into it. But, um, you know, I've, I've looked at the mood disorder questionnaire, and I see that over and over again, is that depending upon the mood the patient is in, they can answer it different ways. And, and you know, if they're really anxious or whatever, 
it can lead you in different directions at that point in time. So I was interested about what you said, having other people in their lives fill out the mood disorder questionnaire. And I was wondering if there have been studies on the sensitivity and specificity of having outsiders look at it, just like with children using the Connors testing. Yeah, unfortunately, I'm, I'm not aware of those data. I'm, um, if, the, if they're there, they've had such a, a low profile that never uh, made it onto my radar. Um, I routinely ask family members for this kind of information, either just in a clinical interview or, or more formally filling out an MDQ. There's such a thing as state-dependent memory, and um, bipolar patients commonly come in for treatment when they're depressed, and uh, they have a lot of difficulty remembering or even recognizing uh, mood elevation episodes, particularly if they were mild, so hypomanias, and particularly if they were in the past. And so the um, the significant other rating is is very helpful. Okay, well, I, I've seen that as well, so I do appreciate it. And, and again, it's an excellent conference. I really do appreciate all the comments and your and your information. Thank you. Well, thank you very much for your question. Really appreciate a number of pertinent uh, matters you brought up there. I'm going to reach out to our operator now and ask if there's other questions uh, for Dr. Ketter. Uh, yes, sir. Uh, our next question comes to us from. Uh, Dorothy Saffron. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Oh, hi. Well, um, thank you. Um, first question is, where uh, where can I get copies of all, all these tests? That's a good question. Where are they available, Terry? Yes. Okay, so there are um, there's several web, uh, websites for the MDQ, the um, uh, uh, Depressive and Bipolar Support Alliance dbsalliance.org has the MDQ. Um, there's another one, yeah. uh, HTTP colon double slash www. I'll spell this out. Uh, C as in Canadian, Q as in Quebec, A as in American, I as in India, M as in mental, and H as in health. dot org. So cqaimh. dot org. And on that, you can find PDF tools. And so if you go slash PDF slash tool uh, underbar MDQ dot PDF, and uh, actually uh, that whole address the same, and tool underbar ASRM dot PDF for the Altman. Is there, <laughs> I, I have a computer and I use it. Um, that's how I got on to you. But is there uh, written, printed material? Yeah, yeah. So the I have um, that, please. Yeah. So the the uh, the article, the data article yeah. for the Hirschfeld one was in the American Journal of Psychiatry in the year 2000. Okay, so the volume was 157, and the page was 1873 to five. Uh, and the American Journal volume. Well, I think what we can do, I'll just mention, maybe you want to just mention the scales, Terry, because what we can do is, as a service, we can put these scales actually on the www.neurosciencecme.com webpage. That there you would go. be good. There yeah. you go. And uh, perhaps, Roger, along with the, the reference for both the Hirschfeld American sure. Journal and yeah, Altman that'd be great. Biopsych. That'd be great. Uh, thank you very much. You're uh, very I, welcome. I just want to say I'm glad to hear somebody from... Uh, Canada, because um, I'm Canadian, a medical graduate of Dalhousie. Oh, very good. Well, uh, my, my, my school as well. 
Is that your school? Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's uh, uh, it's my school as well. But thanks, thanks for your question for for Dr. Ketter, who also has his Canadian roots. Really, that's <laughs> great. All right. Okay. Thank you so much. I think we have another question on the line. Yes, our next uh, question comes to us from David Upton. Go ahead, please. Your line is open. Hello. Thank you very much for the conference. Uh, what is your preference these days for a treatment of patients such as this and in general in bipolar illness, conventional mood stabilizers or the atypical or both? Excellent question. Okay. So so this um, this, you know, 10 years ago would have been a no-brainer when it was mood stabilizers versus first-generation antipsychotics. Uh, the answer 10 years ago would have been the foundational treatments for bipolar disorder or mood stabilizers, and uh, first-generation a- antipsychotics are adjuncts for the treatment of acute mania. Um, nowadays, it's a little different. Uh, there are six second-generation agents FDA-approved for mania, and five of them even have longer-term treatment indications. Um, and, and I think that table is showing now, Terry, with all okay. the approved treatments, yeah, on, on, the, on the web. Okay, and so this, this, is, uh, this is a major, major change here um, that we have such a representation of uh, antipsychotics and that antipsychotics are branching out even into longer-term treatment. Uh, moreover, in the treatment of bipolar depression, an antipsychotic is involved in both of the approved treatments in the U.S. So quetiapine as monotherapy and olanzapine in combination with fluoxetine. So uh, it is, um, I think it's still the case that mood stabilizers are viewed as the treatments that are sort of um, at the centerpiece of the management of bipolar disorder. Yet um, they are getting a they're getting a real run for their money from the second generation antipsychotics, and uh, commonly in patients who have severe problems. It's not a question of one or the other. Both are recommended. So the treatment, many treatment guidelines, if they look at patients with mania bad enough to get hospitalized, they say that uh, the treatment of choice is a combination of a mood stabilizer and a second-generation agent. Thanks so much for the question and also your response, Terry. I really appreciate it. I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think the sign of a good educational program is when time goes by it's as fast as it has. We haven't even touched many of the questions that many of our Participants have submitted here today, and, and I would say that the uh, not only have the questions been, been, been uh, high in quantity, but fabulous and very pertinent to this topic. Obviously, a lot of interest in the detection and the diagnosis of bipolar mania. Thank you, Terry, so much for joining me today, and especially for helping us translate this latest evidence into improvements in our day-to-day practice. And again, a thank you to our audience for joining us for today's program. I know many of you were not able to have your questions answered. Uh, We will endeavor to answer those questions. Please send an email to us if your question was not submitted during this uh, hour uh, frame to questions at cmeoutfitters.com by March 29, 2010, so about two weeks from today. Dr. Karen and I will do our best to answer the questions online over the next two weeks and post a response at www.neurosciencecme.com slash 445. 
I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre, thanking you for taking time to join us today, and I hope you're able to incorporate this evidence into your practice to improve the care of your patients.